This is the Tinkered Thinking Podcast. Episode 548, Shifting Symmetries. It's an impressive feat of biology, nature, and evolution that you can understand this sentence. At least, you sort of understand this sentence. As of yet, you can't understand the context, even though that first sentence can read like its own tidy little package that creates its own context. And if you are a frequent visitor of Tinkered Thinking, perhaps the notion of that first sentence feels reminiscent of much of the discussion that has occurred on Tinkered Thinking over the last 500 and some odd days. Regardless, that first sentence, like any introductory sentence, seeks to lay a first stone in the foundation of a context that then grows with each succeeding sentence, continually, The larger question of any argument, story, or discussion is, where does it go from here? The hope, with any piece of writing or speech, is that we start with some sort of common ground, and from there we take our audience on some sort of quest to a different place where a new perspective awaits. The everlasting problem with this hope is that we do not ever start with common ground. The simple reason for this is rather physical and straightforward. Every single person's perspective is unique. And even though we can take turns standing in the same place, looking in the same direction, at the same subject, we cannot do so at the same time, and more importantly, we cannot do so with the exact same personal history. Otherwise, we'd of course be the same person. This fact that we all have unique perspectives is both a blessing and a curse. The curse is easy to point out. It's the cause behind all bickering, disagreement, confusion, trolling, hate, and that oh-so-delightful feeling that no one can understand where you're coming from. It's for good reason. You're the only one there. This unique perspective is a gift because it can be leveraged to a great and unique effect. No one else can see the world from your point of view, and this means that each of us sees all the world's problems at an angle that no one else can. It might so happen that this is a privileged angle that empowers us with the symmetrical ability to see a solution no one else can because they can't see the problem like we do. We can think of a literal hypothetical to make this clear. Let's do a little thought experiment. Imagine a square room. At the midway point of each wall, a person is chained, and you are one of these four people. No one can really move. And in the center of this square room is an unreachable cube. Naturally, the bottom can't be seen, and it's aligned with the room so each person can only see one side of the cube. Let's say all the cube faces are blank, except the one you can see. It's got the word seven on it. And then from an unknown location, a speaker turns on, and an ominous voice says, this room will fill with a deadly gas unless someone calls out the symbol on the box. In this simple hypothetical, you have the privileged perspective. Everyone else is bound to their point of view and quite literally can't see the side of the box that you can. They see a blank face of the cube and nothing else. 
your unique perspective is the key to solving everyone's predicament. This hypothetical, while simple, is a perfect analogy to the way we are all trapped in our own perspective, and simultaneously privileged by that perspective in that it's accessible to no one else. While many of us may move through life in very similar ways, no two people can possibly share the exact same perspective through time. If we are thoughtful and perhaps lucky, we might be able to create the liking of an intersection, where two minds try their damnedest to create a simulation of the other's perspective. How close these simulations resemble one another or how symmetrical they are dictates how well we understand one another. Amazingly, one of the most robust tools for creating symmetry is a system that exists purely as a concept, numbers. Numbers have a unique ability to create incredible fidelity between perspectives, but we need only ask a question to illuminate how strange this tool is. Where does the number seven exist? The concept is not present in the graphical mark, nor in the sound waves when we say it. And yet, there's less debate about what seven means than there is about some actual phenomena that we can witness, like, say, a magic trick. Say you and a bunch of friends watch a very effective magic trick. Everyone experienced it with their senses. They can say what time it occurred and what location and who was involved. And yet, if it's a well-executed magic trick, no one will be sure what actually happened. And everyone is going to have their own guess about what might have happened. Perhaps one person in the group had gone to the bathroom and re-entered the room behind the magician and caught just the right angle to see what the magician was doing behind their back that gives away the trick. In this way, we can see how our perspective is again like being chained to a wall in that hypothetical square room. But the number seven, like most numbers that we deal with on a human level, consists of a system that aligns perspectives with high fidelity, much higher fidelity than most words. The meaning of seven doesn't shift. It's got a transferable property in that its meaning can be applied to other things, like the number of chickens in a coop, but its meaning remains incredibly consistent whether we are talking about chickens or black holes. Most words are not so stable. S.I. Hayakawa, author of the classic work on semantics entitled Language in Thought and Action, went so far as to write, quote, if we can get deeply into our consciousness the principle that no word ever has the same meaning twice, we will develop the habit of automatically examining contexts, and this will enable us to understand better what others are saying. This might sound insane at first, that no word ever means the same thing twice. To take this as literally as possible, it means that dictionaries are outdated and inaccurate the moment they are published. But if we combine this with the fact that we all have unique perspectives, perhaps it becomes a little more approachable. Though the words in this sentence seem as though they mean what you've always associated them with, 
No one can possibly approach the words in this sentence in the exact same way that you do. This even extends to yourself given a different time. A second reading yields a different effect than the first, and so does the third, and so on and so forth. The unique way in which you discovered the meaning and use of these words and then continued to use them yourself informs your interpretation of what's going on here in terms of meaning. Inevitably, it's going to be different than anyone else and certainly different than the person who constructed this sentence. The static construction of these words might make it seem as though it's something stable that can be revisited, but it's not. The meaning of words functions like a river, but it's not the words that are moving so much as it is our minds. Not only are our minds arriving at meaning from different places, but they will continue on to evolve in disparate directions. We are continually seeking to establish common ground. The problem is that the only ground on offer is quicksand. Let's return for a moment to our hypothetical square room thought experiment where everyone is chained to a wall. The speaker turns on and asks for a single person to call out the symbol that is on the box. Except in this version of the hypothetical, you see the word seven, and on the other sides of the cube are different words that you can't see. On top of this, the cube appears to be transparent, and this illusion makes it look as though nothing is written on the other sides of the cube. So each person sees something different written on the cube and believes that it's the only thing that's written on the cube. Now imagine the confusion and horror when everyone pipes up and yells out a different answer. Everyone is trying to solve for the problem, but each person's unique perspective not only makes them think they are right, but also primes them to think everyone else is wrong and that everyone else is acting out in some sort of bizarre kind of self-sabotage. If that feeling of sinking confusion and astonishment doesn't sound familiar, then welcome to Earth. Additionally, we can view a word as a kind of simulation. By saying the word boat, we invoke a simulation of boatness in another person's mind. Of course, they might have a cruise ship in mind while you were thinking of a three-masted bark. Both have enough boatness to qualify in the same way that the concept of the number seven is transferable to seven chickens or seven black holes, but not to three aphids. Another way to say simulation is simply model. Words are perhaps the most basic mental models of real-world details. And language allows us to transfer infinite combinations of these mental models to one another in order to get a better idea of what's going on. This is what any mental model does, whether we are using a bell curve or Bayesian updating. They help us get a handle of what is actually going on through strategic simplification, or rather, they help us understand what might be going on with reality. As Charlie Munger once said, if the facts don't hang together on a latticework of theory, you don't have them in a usable form, 
you've got to have models in your head. You can't really know anything if you just remember isolated facts. You've got to hang experience on a latticework of models in your head. In the same exact way that every analogy is flawed, all mental models are incomplete. The effectiveness of any mental model is dependent on the context to which we apply it. For example, Hanlon's razor might not be the best mental model to have at the forefront when dealing with a psychopath. At base, these mental models are sense-making frameworks that simplify the world into chunks that are more understandable as a result. Like the number seven, they consist of concepts that retain their utility when transferred to different contexts that have enough similarities. Let's explore a statement as a kind of mental model. Here's the claim. People do things for only two reasons. It feels pleasurable and or it conveys sexiness. This might be overly simplistic, and to some, it might even seem offensively simplistic. Indeed, at first glance, it would be understandable to think that this claim is missing out on a whole lot of what goes on in human affairs. But let's explore it in more detail. It's intuitive that we do some things because they feel good. However, pleasure is on a spectrum of sensation. At the other end of this spectrum is pain, discomfort, or most appropriately, displeasure. Doing something because it's pleasurable ultimately includes doing things that decrease displeasure and move a person along the spectrum towards some sort of pleasurable state. So this first half of the claim also covers our motives concerning what's painful or simply unwanted, like, say, baby puke on your shirt. You're motivated to change shirts because it's more pleasing to have a clean one on. As an aside, it's important to note that anything that is pleasant or pleases a person in any way also qualifies as being pleasurable since these words have the exact same root word. Splitting hairs over connotative subtleties is pedantic since pleasing and pleasant are both represented very closely to pleasure on the discussed spectrum that stretches between pleasure and pain. Another example might be if the baby pukes on the shirt of your spouse. You might go get them a fresh shirt, and helping out in that way feels good. Feeling good, while sharing no root word with the word pleasure, also counts as synonymous because of where this concept would fall on the pleasure-pain spectrum. Feeling good is sure to be much closer to pleasure than pain. Things like tradition and religion also fit into this framework of pleasure. People follow laws because the consequences of not doing so are presumably painful, and therefore staying in accord with laws or traditions generally creates a more pleasant experience. People follow the ideas of the Bible for much the same reason, not to mention the pleasant sense of community and belonging that come along with such tradition. We must also take into account the incredible amount of social pain someone would have to endure in order to leave such a situation. Megan Phelps Roper, who was a former member of the Westboro Baptist Church, has spoken about such anguish. 
And yet in that case, it's clear that the anguish of being an inconsistent person was far more painful than the social pain that ensued as a result of her departure. And on that note, there is, of course, an entire universe of pain that we purposefully and consciously put ourselves through, which seems at first to invalidate the first half of this claim, but that is why there is a second part of the claim regarding the conveyance of sexiness. We are, at core, biological machines that seek to replicate and pass on our genes, or at least that's the point of view handed to us from the large mental model of evolutionary biology and Charles Darwin. And this mental model does seem to explain a lot of weird things. Sexual selection is the often convoluted way in which organisms signal reproductive fitness to one another. A peacock's tail is the classic example. If a male peacock can live a strong and healthy life, then it will have a large and beautiful tail that it can show off. What this tail means within the perspective afforded by the mental model of evolutionary biology is, look at me, I'm so good at surviving that I'm thriving, and I can waste resources on this big cumbersome tail that actually makes me more susceptible to predators, but I'm so awesome that I still survive even with this gorgeous handicap that I've given myself on purpose. I'd be a perfect match if you want your kids to be strong and talented at survival like me. Going to the gym to have a really fit body is a similar example. It's usually much more pleasurable to just sit on the couch and eat junk food while binging on the latest Netflix show, but we put ourselves through the pain of staying fit. One of the possible reasons for doing this is to convey sexiness, and therefore reproductive fitness. Then, of course, there's the fact that this process itself becomes a pleasurable habit. Conveying sexiness is why we would consciously go backwards on the pleasure-pain spectrum. Another caveat to mention is that a pleasant state can simply overrule the sexiness factor, like wearing socks with sandals. It's definitely not sexy, so it must be comfortable and pleasing. Another objection to this claim might involve things like love and compassion, a mother caring for her child, or volunteers serving food to the poor. How do acts of selflessness fit into this pleasure and sexiness rubric? But we need only ask, are not the motivating feelings of love and compassion pleasant? Doesn't it feel good for people who do to volunteer or care for a child? People doing such good, whether within a public setting or a family setting, are doing so because it feels good. Hence our description of such acts being doing some good. Sifting through the entire array of human activity to show how each and everything that we do fits into this rubric wouldn't simply be tedious, it's impossible. What's more important than such a catalog is to dig a little deeper and ask, why? Why can all of human behavior fall into a combination of these two categories? What exists at the core of these categories that makes them so universal for human affairs? These two rubrics of pleasure and sexiness are actually masks for a process that exists at a much deeper level in nature. 
This is the process of connection and efficiency. Sexiness impels us towards connection. This should be obvious because it's intended to be quite literal. Sexiness directly refers to the act of sex, which is about as connected as two people can get in the wide scheme of genes and reproduction. The second one is a bit more shrouded. Pleasure pushes us towards efficient connections. To illustrate this deeper layer, it's helpful to leave the world of human affairs in order to see how connection and efficiency operate on a basic natural level devoid of sex and pleasure. Think of the way a tree's roots and leaves grow out in all sorts of directions. They are looking for connections that will help sustain the life of the tree. Each tree inevitably has a different shape, which is optimal for that particular place and climate. Lightning functions in a similar way. If you watch an ultra-slow video of lightning, which is linked to on the post at tinkeredthinking.com, you'll see that there's actually a root-like structure that reaches out from the cloud. Each quote-unquote root of lightning is reaching out looking for connection, and when one of those tendrils finally touches something, boom. That's when you actually see the lightning. That one path represents the most efficient path that was discovered when the pulse of energy reached out from the cloud. Of all the possible tendrils that were searching for a connection, the lightning we see ends up being the shortest of all of them that actually leads to a connection. Now, to be sure, as with lightning, so with the tree, their specific configurations in any given point might not be the most efficient, but it's the most efficient that could be found by natural processes in that situation. We can see a similar lack of effectiveness in human biology as it's affected by modern culture. We are biologically hardwired by evolution to seek out and consume sweet, energy-dense foods. This is because way back in the day, when these sweet, energy-dense foods were rare in the natural world, they represented the most efficient way to get energy into the body that can then be devoted to other things like being sexy. And this is why chocolate ice cream is so pleasurable. It's our old biological hardware that is trying to optimize for energy efficiency. But of course, in the modern world, this has now backfired, especially when it comes to sexiness. And we are left with the constant struggle towards the icky end of the pleasure-pain spectrum. Now, to bridge the conscious human in this discussion with the paradoxically lifeless lightning and living tree, it's interesting to note an experiment that was done with slime mold. Yes, slime mold. In this experiment, which can be viewed on YouTube and is linked to in the post for this episode, small concentrations of food were arranged as dots and laid out in accordance to the shape of the Tokyo City area. The slime mold was let loose, and it instantly started to spread out in all the directions it could. Kind of like the root system of lightning that spreads out from a cloud, or the roots of a tree. When the slime mold came across one of these food dots, it would grow using that nutrition and reach out further. Once the slime mold had discovered all of the food dots, 
It then reformed itself to strengthen the connections between the dots so that the entire organism could take advantage of the food in the most efficient way possible. And you know what the connections of this slime mold ended up looking like? It looked exactly like the Tokyo railway system. The slime mold reaches out in all directions, makes advantageous connections, and then optimizes those connections to be as efficient as possible. Just as the engineers for the Tokyo railway system designed it so that travel between all Tokyo areas was as efficient as possible. Something deeply embedded in nature seems to have a search algorithm built into it that tries to create connections like these, and then these connections get optimized for efficiency. In a basic sense, this is how the brain also works and learns. It forms connections between neurons and then strengthens those connections by myelinating the axon that connects the two, and this myelination makes the connection faster and more efficient. Is it surprising that this algorithm of search and optimize is noticeable on different levels of emergence, from something as elemental as lightning right up to the human level of behavior? Granted, we as a species are a giant mess, and we are far from having optimized what it is we are actually on track to do, but the process is clearly there. Our technology is all about connection, and it gets faster every day. Indeed, we've found a way to create connections faster than ever before. No need to randomly encounter some unknown tribe in order to make a new connection. Now we can just Google who we think we might want to talk to, or scroll through Twitter and Tinder profiles. It's no surprise either that along with this hypercharged connection comes a rambunctious cacophony of opinion and language that simultaneously has a better grip on what's actually going on in reality and also seems perpetually at risk of floating off into its own fantasy land. We do best to remember that everyone is looking at a different side of an infinity cube that has a different side for everyone and on it scrolled a different word. When we hear people say things that seem nonsensical or insane, instead of just shouting out what you see, it's actually our only opportunity to pause and wonder, where are they coming from? And how are they seeing things that make them say that? This pause and question doesn't just create the potential for a new connection, it's also how we optimize the connections we already have. This episode relies heavily on episode 505, The Endless Arbitrage of Language, and episode 13, Lightning and Trees. And to be sure, for a full context to frame this episode, be sure to peruse all 394,835 words that currently make up the Tinkered Thinking platform. It would also do well to stay tuned as the new ideas in this episode get fleshed out in future episodes and optimized. This episode was also heavily influenced by Esai Hayakawa's Language in Thought and Action, which you can buy through a link on the Tinkered Thinking reading list. Also, just as a final note, Charlie Munger's exact order of sentences was rearranged slightly in order to make the ideas more succinct. 
This is the Tinkered Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you find the Tinkered Thinking Podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this on the support page at tinkeredthinking.com. Both one-time support and monthly subscription support options are available. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible. Any feedback or questions are always welcome, so feel free to reach out. And until tomorrow, remember to be careful about the context.